When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode 130, The Velvet Glove and the Iron Gauntlet. From late 1405 into the spring of 1406, as talks of some sort were breaking out, Henry's forces were attacking Anglesey. As we mentioned last episode, Glyndwr, realizing that the island was almost indefensible against attack both from sea and, of course, from the land once there were forces on it, started to retreat. He removed vital grain stores, livestock, and soldiers back across the strait, and all but gave up on holding the ancient druid's home. One thing that had become apparent to the English over the war was how little their ring of stone and iron had meant in the face of Glyndor's aggressions. The castles that were built by Norman successors were destroyed, raided, or avoided by the Welsh. Few were held, and only those that were strategically important were actually assaulted or held for those reasons. Harlech, for example, was kept because it acted as a significant role in setting the state legitimacy for Glyndor, while mostly keeping his family away from the risk of siege, at least at this stage. Carfili was only attacked briefly, but never taken, Cardiff was never taken, Carmarthen was ruined, as was many of the other border castles, but largely they did not feature in the campaign, and this may be due to a couple of different reasons, and we can come to a different con- couple of different conclusions because of it. One, the Welsh did not have the manpower or the willingness to garrison many castles, so they avoided keeping the English towns they took for that reason. That way, they were harder to catch, as they could still move freely on the, in the mountains, hills, valleys, and areas around Wales. Two, it kept the English forces, conversely, tied up garrisoning the same castles, rarely mustering to take on the rebels, and in some cases English soldiers and town folk turned a blind eye to what their neighbors were up to, including buying them off at times. It was likely a bit of both of these things, if I was to be honest. Given the situation, it seems somewhat sensible, but a dangerous position when you consider how volatile Henry was against betrayal. He likely knew he could do little about these castles and and citizens not taking part in the war, but his general demeanor was one of utter loyalty at all cost, probably an issue as a usurper. If you do not have the loyalty amongst your people, at least a natural loyalty that comes with either strong leadership or more likely uh, inheritance of that position, a lot of concern then comes in 
on how you feel about the way that people look at you and your willingness to enforce it harshly becomes a lot stronger. We see this a lot in cases of, say, a dictatorship where they take over and suddenly everything becomes much more difficult and harsh on the population to keep them in line. In February, more Englishmen arrived in Carnarvon and attacks on Anglesey continued as well as the surrounding areas. March 1406 was becoming a crucial month for the weak Welsh and French alliance. Glyndor was in trouble. He had English forces closing on his base of operations in Harlech and was being cut off from the valuable land in North Wales, specifically, as we've said in the past, an area which was the breadbasket for North Wales. Meanwhile, as we mentioned last time, the French were obsessing over who the real Pope should be. It would lead to negotiations seen as a last desperate stab by Glyndur to put Henry once and for all out of Wales and to build a long-term alliance of nations between France and Wales, like there had been with Scotland in the past in France. I have talked at length at the precariousness of the operation now must appear to Glyndur. He needed France, and he needed peace. I believe strongly that Glyndur knew from as early as 1400 that he needed strong allies from various countries or he was doomed. Most scholars appear to agree on that front at least. Historian Gideon Bro has gone a long way to try and show that the winter of 1405 and 1406 would be one where Wales was seeking to build a formidable alliance to dictate terms of peace with Henry and the Welsh. He was looking to shore up support in peacetime rather than desperate measures of someone on the defensive. In fact, he goes on to argue that he didn't look at this situation as desperate for Glyndur as it was more a case of they had built up some sort of truce and it had given him time to create a nation state. It, I'm not sure I see it that way, but I understand where he's coming from. In fact, he does spend some time explaining that by approaching and building support with the French and their desires, it would then help construct a long-lasting barrier against the English, one he hoped would allow him the time he needed to imprint a peaceful kingdom on his realm. The French Orleanists wanted their pope on the throne in Rome, something we've, as I said in the past, discussed at length, but... What has not been brought forward was that the opposing side in the French court, the Burgundians, had very little concern about this issue. The English would use that difference to their own political and military advantage. Through much of the war, one thing we have seen very little of is military pushback by the English against their French enemies. For the most part, they had taken the Scots out of any sort of opposition, at least on land. Scottish merchants and navy were still willing to help the Allies in Wales and France, and they had largely, however, become impotent on the land after their major defeat. Henry had defeated English opposition. His last vestige of opposition on that front, Henry Percy, was unable to drum up enough French and Scottish support to try and reverse that loss. That's the problem when you fail. You're not held in any high regard or expectation. With the exception of Glyndur, Henry had been able to militarily enforce his will, but with the French he took on a much more careful tack as he worked to negotiate rather than to defeat them in open combat. This likely stood because the wars on multiple fronts are usually bad ideas, as well the English wanted to maintain the split in court, which 
help them in defining that their access to the throne in France, but also kept the two sides at loggerheads, which would, in the English mindset, keep them out of England. The best way to do this was to try and lull the Burgundians and their allies to the side with Henry. So the English sent nobles, scholars, and knights over to negotiate deals. In one case, they signed a trade pact with the Duke of Burgundy and his Flemish allies. This created a financial tie between them, enriching both sides, but also setting up levels of familiarity with each other. Henry also offered protection to the Flemish and Burgundian fishermen and merchants traveling between France and England. This, in the midst of a period of violence on the open seas, which had been lashing out with the French and Castilians on one side against the English on the other. In this aspect, Henry played against type and offered a velvet glove instead of his usual iron gauntlet. And, to all appearances, it seemed to work well. The Burgundians lashed out against the Orleanists and their moves to support the Welsh in 1405. When the king, roused once more from his bout of mental health troubles, took part in the proceedings in court, he mitigated the power that the Orleanists had been able to wield as they managed the government. The toing and froing of French politics was part of the issue for Owen, and the advantages it offered Henry were obvious. Keep playing both sides off on the other, and it gave him time to finally get his side ready for the final push. Keep the French occupied, and they cannot send more troops to help Owen. At this point, the rebellion could still go either way. If the French continue year after year, campaign after campaign, to bring troops to Wales, to offer blood and treasure that totals up to something that can challenge Henry and his tenuous hold on the English throne... This would be in the back of the mind of everyone who had a stake in the Lancastrian government at the time, and I'm sure would put the fear of God in them. So, therefore, it was critical in these negotiations and in this work diplomatically that the English continue to help their allies avoid this so that they could use them for their own benefit. Of course, the Burgundian faction would find common cause with England useful as it would be a way to put the Orleanists in their place, who, as they perceived it, were simply caught up in a personal grudge and wasting French troops in Italy and Wales for little more than a token show of force. So, this exchange was beneficial to both sides, as the Orleanists would find out it would continue to create problems for them and would have drastic consequences for Wales. So in the midst of English harassment and negotiations, Owen decided to make it official. He would promise Wales to the French-supported Pope, the Spaniard Benedict XIII, and join the other French allies, Scotland, Castile, and Sicily, in declaring Pope Innocent VII in Italy the anti-pope. Anti-popes, for if you don't know, are considered to be false popes, and both sides had long called the other by that name. They would also excommunicate each other occasionally, and all sorts of chaos would interrupt them because of that. Uh, unfortunately for Benedict, his fate would see him labeled as an anti-pope, and the Catholic Church would actually eliminate the entire line as a line of popes, which was an interesting conclusion to the whole situation, and not one that's really pertinent to the story. And in fact, they would reunite both parties after Benedict's death, 
Benedict himself had been very ardent as Pope, spending 17 years fighting for his right to the see, even as his allies continued to abandon him. And in fact, in later years of his life, only his home country of Castile would actually defend him. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to, but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it. Because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week wherever you get your podcasts. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. In the spring of 1406, Benedict still counted many important allies and adding the Welsh to that list was important to him, the Orleanists and to the Welsh themselves. The Welsh, at the beginning of March, wrote a letter to Benedict announcing their intention to follow his order. And as they support his claim, in return, they had specific points to make and things that they felt they should receive. The Welsh key points fell in order of creation of two Welsh universities, one for the north and one to the south. Now keep in mind, universities in this period are dedicated towards teaching clergymen and the nobles, and certainly not the majority of the population. St. David was to serve as a center of Welsh Catholicism and not be responsible to the Archbishop of Canterbury as they had been since the almost the establishment of that clergy back in the 6th century. They sought recognition that their clergy needed to speak Welsh, something which makes sense but shows that much of the clergy to this point could not speak the language of their flock, as typically it was dominated by English members, obviously with the control being out of the Archbishop of Canterbury, he had no reason to appoint Welsh-specific clergy. Finally, Owen wanted recognition in his place as Prince of Wales and sole leader of his country. He would recognize the French Catholic Church supremacy if it first recognized his in most of the demands and commitments, largely the Welshman was parroting the requests of the Orleanists. In it, it is clear that he wanted their help, and in order to get it, he needed to speak the language of court, the righteousness of their cause in the face of Roman and English opposition. He was also very clear in word of what he thought of Henry. He called Henry IV an apostate, someone who needed to be disciplined not by temporal officials, but by the church itself. He described the English in a way that really had not been done in a while. They were no longer Normans or Vikings or any variety of the same, but were once again Saxons. 
it is a name which is very much a holdover from a previous time, but something that would remain in use in the Welsh language to call the English people. The term Sasnig, or Saxon, would be an important distinction for Henry's court for Owen. The other term used in writing the Pope was to call them barbarians. So Owen, in writing that he was happy to defend the French claims for the sea, effectively made it clear what he felt that sea should judge upon these barbarians. So in, he was simply not happy to just put Henry to the sword, but also wanted to put him on the stake. He wanted the Pope to know that his subjects were pagans, that they were people that were worthy to crusade against. And this is something of importance because during this time period, there was crusades called quite frequently against various peoples for various reasons, for not being Orthodox Catholics, for being, in some cases, actually Islamic or Jews or some other religious worship, even against fellow Christians. It was a common tactic to take in order to purify them, in quotes. So this idea would also bring a lot of advantages. By using these terms, Owen, like Edward before him, was lifting religious justification as another tool in the toolbox of gaining armies to fight for the cause. If Henry was a heretic and his regime an ungodly pagan horde, then it behooves the Christians of the world to take him on and defeat him in person. So in the end, this violent language created an image that Owen wanted the French to see, an image of not a noble Christian king defending his lands against usurpers and rebels, but rather a pagan barbarian, little better than the invaders that came to Britain in the 5th century and 6th century, and thus not worth defense and not worth the sacraments that would be afforded to a Catholic king. These kind of things would, of course, happen quite frequently over the next few hundred years. But this idea and this movement towards blaming your fellow Christian for being not Catholic enough would become something that was used, like we said, even back a hundred years prior by Edward when talking about Llewellyn the Last. And these kind of movements were never really about their religious beliefs, whether they were correct or otherwise, but more about the fact that it gave them more people to fight. If you can get zealot crusaders to come over and help you, it even makes it more useful because it's like having mercenaries without having to pay for them. And in the medieval period, and certainly as we enter the early modern period, the purchase and need of mercenaries was becoming much more important. As we mentioned previously, during the Hundred Years' War, mercenary companies were incredibly popular in use, and both sides took advantage of them. And at times, these companies fought for both sides. So it was kind of the way to do that. So if you don't have the funding, if you don't have the money to be able to do this on your own, this becomes one way that you can expand your military in a way that doesn't allow you or cost you the same as it would if you had to hire a bunch of mercenaries to do the same job. If successful, 
This might have tipped the war back into Owen's favor. It might have been the thing that helped Wales, at least to this point, gain its independence. Now, you can argue whether they would have held it much beyond Owen's death, but at this point, that would have been a way to do it. If you have a massive army, one that stands up to the English at all costs, and better yet, can defeat them, then how much better is that? Keep in mind that originally, in the ideas that... that uh, Owen had had about the boundaries of Wales. He was starting to include parts of England. It wasn't just Wales that he saw as the boundary line. He would go into areas like what Gloucester and Herefordshire and areas as far as Liverpool and take all of those areas into his kingdom had he been able to pull off the tripartite agreement and actually had the English been able to win that fight something that would have been quite an adjustment for a number of people along that borderline. And just think of how different England and Wales would be if that ended up being the border of the two countries going forward. Certainly from a financial standpoint and from a uh, food standpoint, it would have allowed Owen to have the financial backing he needed to survive because one of the problems you run into, and certainly the kings of Gwyneth and later could certainly tell you, when you don't have enough arable farmland, it becomes a bit of an issue when that's a big part of your economy. And Wales had always struggled from that, especially once the Norman lords started to take over the south, which of course was a much better agricultural area for farming and for agriculture, specifically over livestock than North Wales had been, specifically in Northwest Wales. So for those reasons, it would make sense. But realistically, would he have been able to hold up those claims? I'm not so sure. Now, in the end, this violent language and this calls for righteous anger Owen had hoped would aid him were measured against Henry's use of the velvet glove. And this soft talk to disarm his enemies. Unfortunately for Owen, the French king revived enough to send the Duke of Orleans out of court shortly after these declarations were written down, and the help he had hoped to receive died with that on the vine. The Pope may have supported the Welsh claims, but Benedict by 1409 would be on the run and out of French favor. The schism would have no more effect on the events that were to come, and with the Orleanists chastened, Henry was able to prepare to go on the offensive once more, and Owen must have known by the summer of 1406 that his time had run out and that his opportunity had probably come to an end. And with that, I'd like to thank you for listening. If you have any comments, questions, or concerns, you can always reach me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com or join us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast or on Twitter at Welsh History Pod. And as well, of course, if you are interested in helping to keep the show, keep its lights on, uh, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Welsh History. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Have yourselves a great day. Take care. We'll see you later. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. 
History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.